Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning, if you would, and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. All of us, from time to time, will use an excuse. Conviction probably would fall upon this place if we talked about all the excuses that we've used. Whether it's because we're late, whether it's because we didn't accomplish something, whether it's because we weren't where we were supposed to be, somewhere along the line we will use an excuse. And there's so many people today in our society, in our world, that will use also an excuse when it comes to spiritual matters. Today I want to show you a passage which I think God tells us very clearly that there are no excuses for who we are, for what's going on. Rather, we have to confront ourselves as the Holy Spirit works in our lives and as we see who we are as we stand before a holy God. Last week, we talked about the good news. We talked about the gospel and how I love to talk about the good news. To be honest with you, I think I could preach it every week. And I hope in some way, I hope in some way I do. Because we should be in love with telling that old, old story, right? How Jesus came, how Jesus has worked in our lives. But I want you to know that as Paul spoke to the Romans, as he talked about good news in those first few verses of this chapter as he talked about how he'd been gripped by the gospel and how the Romans had been gripped by the gospel. He also put it in context of the bad news. This is a very difficult message for me to bring today, to be honest with you. I've been burdened about this all week long because what Paul does is he gives us the truth of Scripture as he shows us how difficult, how bad how sinful we can become as a people how sinful we can be as a culture and how in the with the backdrop of the bad news we so desperately need the good news so i've been praying this week i've asked staff to pray for me as i bring this message that i would bring it with clarity with boldness and that i would speak with the truth of the scripture. And I want us to do one thing this morning, if you would. A little bit out of the way. I went up to the sound booth a moment ago and I told them I'm going to call an audible. But I want us to stop. I saw Bob Myers. Bob, come here. I saw Bob in the hall. And I said, Bob, before I preach this message this morning, I just need you to come and pray for me again. Now, I know that you've been praying. I hope that you have this week. I know my staff has been praying for me, but I want us to stop right now and pray that whatever is said in this pulpit today, one, would be the truth of God, and two, would be said in a sensitive way to know that there are hurting people out there that need to know the good news of Jesus Christ. So, Bob, would you come and pray for us this morning? Father God, this morning as we approach this message, I'm reminded that you've taught us that we're not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And Father, this morning as Dr. Reggie brings this word, I thank you for how your word can comfort us, it can teach us, it can guide us, and Father, it can convict us. Father, I, I pray this morning that you would open hearts and minds to this message 
that you would speak boldly through Dr. Reggie, that your spirit would, would just be on him and he would, uh, he would be able to preach your word, Father, effectively, clearly uh, this morning as he, as he brings this message. Uh, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul begins to lay out to us the bad news. As I said, he puts in context the good news as he gives us this backdrop of bad news. And listen to what he says. He says in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Now stop there. Even in those first few words of verse 18, I hope that you can see the heaviness and the burden that I have in my heart and life today. I mean, to be able to open up the scripture and hear Paul write in such a way, for the wrath of God is being revealed. In that present tense, in other words, the wrath, the anger of God is going on being revealed, unveiled to us. It seems so out of place when it comes to God, doesn't it? To talk about his anger and his wrath. Or at least it seems so out of place today in our culture to talk about a God who could bring forth wrath, who could look at things in anger. Most of us, when we talk about anger, we're talking about an emotion that does not produce righteousness in most cases for us. When we think about anger, it's this emotion that overwhelms us and many times leads us to terrible activity. But listen to what Paul says. Paul says that the God that we have, that he can display wrath and anger. How can a God who is loving do that? How can a God who is compassionate and merciful... I think all of us in this place, all of us in this place would recognize that we have a God who is more loving than any other being in this universe. I believe we, we would confess today that we have a God who is merciful and gracious. A moment ago, our orchestra here in the sanctuary played marvelous grace. And we marvel at the grace of God. Most all of us would do that here. So how could we reconcile this God who is wrathful, who has anger, with a God who is loving, compassionate, and gracious? I think the two can go together. I really do. I believe it has to go together as I read the Scripture. Even though we have some difficult moments trying to explain it. A few weeks ago I was finishing up the gathering service and a young man came to me afterwards, and he began to ask me a lot of questions about the God that I served and who this God was and how he was displayed in the Scripture. And he asked me, he said, can God be angry? And I said, I believe the God that I serve can be angry. In other words, he can have a righteous indignation. He said, righteous indignation? You're saying that I, righteous indignation? I said, our God can look at the sin. He can look at unrighteousness. And he can respond with a sense of anger and wrath. It can go together. For example, with us. Let's say that, that we have a love for our children or our grandchildren. We, we would admit that today, wouldn't we? 
If you don't, you need to be an altar today after. We love our children and our grandchildren. We love them with everything that we have. So let me ask you, if those children or grandchildren were in some way harmed continually, abused, and you found out about it, would you not be angry to some degree? Absolutely. I know. Absolutely. If you found out that the person that you loved had been harmed continually or abused, you would be angry. But yet you still love these individuals. Because love and anger can go hand in hand. And in this case, when you think about God, when he, when he is angry, what is he angry at? He is angry at unrighteousness. He is angry at sin. That, that's what you see here in this passage. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed in this constant way from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why is God so mad at what sin does to us? Why is he so angry at what is happening to us? Because he cares about us so much. He loves you and he loves me so much that it, that it makes him angry to see the effects of sin upon our lives. Because that's not what God intended for us. Listen, God did not intend for us to be harmed by sin. Jesus Christ, as he has come, as he has demonstrated the message and the ministry and the work that we so desperately need, Jesus Christ came so that we could have what? Life and to have it more abundantly. He loved us so much that he came. And that is the reason that he is angry when he sees the effects of sin. I believe even as he stood, even as Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who had died, he stood there and the Bible says that he wept. Remember that verse? Yes, you do. It's the only one you ever memorized. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The language that is used there is that he was disturbed as well. That he was violently disturbed at what had happened. Now this Jesus knew that Lazarus would live. Would you believe that with me? He knew that. He knew that he was going to resurrect. So why was he so upset? Why did he respond in such a violently emotional way? Because he had seen what sin had done. That's what he was coming to confront. Sin, hell, and the death and death itself, the grave itself. He had come to confront it and he had seen what it had done to those that he had loved. He was angry. He was sad. And Paul says to the Romans, as he's already put forth the good news of the first 17 verses, he says, now, this is the bad news. That God is angry. He is wrathful towards sin. All kinds, exhaustive, all unrighteousness, all ungodliness. You might say irreverence. You might say that which falls outside of the will of God. As you look at those words. But he says, God is wrathful. Again, why is this? Because our God is righteous. Verse 17 that we left off with last week says that the righteousness of God is also being revealed. The same language. It's, it's this idea of the apocalypse. 
the unveiling, uh, the revealing. Same word that's used of our New Testament book, the revelation. It's the unveiling of righteousness. Same word that's used in verse 18, the unveiling of God's wrath, the revealing. I think the two are connected. Because when you recognize that God is righteous, that means that God is holy. Then it would make sense that he would be angry towards sin and its effects upon our lives. See, we have a God who is not just positionally separate from us, but we have a God who is morally separate from us. Could you agree with me on that? That our God is just totally different. He is morally superior to who we are. He's morally superior to... He has never done anything. Listen, he has never committed any type of sin or trespass. Our God is righteous. Our God is holy. So there he is, holy, righteous. I think sometimes we forget that. Why? Because in our culture today... We have decided we would rather have a God we can feel than a God we can fear. And yet, the holy, righteous God, morally separate from us, He is a God that deserves our praise and worship, but He is a God who is radically opposed to sin and its effects. And He would have to be, otherwise He wouldn't be God. If our God could give in to sin, if our God had committed trespass, guess what? He would be less than God. He would not be holy, and he would not be worthy of our praise. But this God is righteous. Because of that, sin is an affront to him. Unrighteousness. All kinds of ungodliness he is opposed to. So here it says that God's wrath is being demonstrated toward man's ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now look at verse 20. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Listen to this. Paul says that the wrath of God is being demonstrated against all of man's unrighteousness and ungodliness. And then what he says is that man has rejected, rebelled against even God's revelation. As God has revealed himself, man has seen what God has done, and yet what has he done? He has chosen to reject that and rebel against the God of heaven. Some amazing, significant moments here in Scripture where it says that basically God has demonstrated himself to all people at all times in all places. God has demonstrated himself. He calls it or refers to it in the idea of the invisible 
being demonstrated through the visible. God being demonstrated through what? Creation itself. We used to find this all through Scripture. That creation declares there's a God. Read Psalm 19, where it talks about the heavens declaring that there is a God. Creation itself declares there's a God. And all people at all times have been given that revelation. You can look at creation and know that there's a God. Or you should. You should. I I love the way William Paley gave the illustration of the watch many years ago. And what he said is that if you are walking along, let's say you're walking along in a tropical forest somewhere. Not many of you probably would do that, but let's just pretend this morning, all right? Walking along in a tropical forest. You're watching, you're hoping you don't step on snakes or anything else so that you're looking around. And all of a sudden, you find this watch. You find a watch there in the middle of the rainforest. You pick it up. You look at it. You begin to see. You begin to turn knobs and recognize different aspects of it. When you look at that, when you see the watch, it tells you what? It tells you that somebody else with some intelligence has been there and has actually created that. I mean, wouldn't you deduce that? I mean... Even Mississippi State people can figure that out, all right? They know that something is special about this. It didn't, look, it didn't just happen. I mean, the watch didn't didn't just like somehow find the right type of composition or, or dirt or molecules or all that and just happen to come together and, and, and demonstrate intelligence right there in the middle of the jungle. Within reason, you should be able to say, huh, look at the complexity and design of this watch. Even if it doesn't work, even if it's been left out there, you recognize, hmm, there's something about this. And if it were to work, you were to, and you were to see how it would perfectly keep time, you would be even more impressed. William Paley uses that illustration to talk about the intelligent design of this universe. When you look at the universe and you think about creation and you see the rhythm of daily life, it should be natural for you and for me to say, hey, there's got to be an intelligent being behind this. There has to be a God. How many other cultures, not even those familiar with the faith that we have, how many of them have created some type of God in order to express their belief that there was something intelligent behind creation? And what Paul says is that all, he's speaking, I think, specifically of the Gentile cultures here, but he's saying about the Gentiles that even they have some knowledge of God. They can look at creation. Just as the story of old told us about how the cosmonauts went up first into space and they looked out and they came back. And what did they say? They said, we looked everywhere and there was no God. But the Americans, the astronauts went up and they looked out and they came back. And what did they say? They said, we saw God everywhere because of creation's glory. 
creation's design. There's something about it that everybody in every place has some concept of God. Later on in chapter 2, we're not going to look at that in this study of Romans. I hope you'll go home and read it, though. In chapter 2, it says, even the Gentiles had some unwritten law upon their heart as well. In other words, they have some idea of what, what is good and what is wrong. What is right, what is bad. In some way, they know Gentiles have some type of moral compass within themselves. All of this drives us to remind, it reminds us that all of us can have some, some concept of God through general revelation. Now, general revelation is not enough to save anybody, is it? It's not. It's enough to tell us there's a God. But according to what Paul was saying, we're going to flesh this out in the weeks to come, only the special revelation of Jesus Christ, faith in him, only that can bring true salvation. One theology professor put it this way. When I was sitting at New Orleans, he said, general revelation, creation, conscience, all that is enough to condemn us. But only the special revelation of Christ is enough to save us. The bad news is that so many have rejected and notice, it says that they have suppressed the truth. They have suppressed the truth. The idea is that they have known the truth in some way. And if you look at all our cultures, we all trace our roots back to our great, 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 great grandpa named Adam. We all trace our roots back there. Somewhere along the line, that culture, that group of individuals said, we reject the truth of the God of the creator of God who made us. Every culture in some way rejected. Every culture rejected the life that was in God. They suppressed the truth. The idea is that they tried to keep a lid on the truth. And what happened? Well, according to this... If you continue to read through, for example, 24, it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in, their lusts, in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. In other words, God radically abandoned these cultures. Now understand, they had made the choice. They knew the truth, they rejected the truth, and what God did is God radically abandoned. He said, if this is what you want, then you can have it. And he gave them over. What a sad commentary. When God gives us over to our own desires and lust. When he just says, I've given you the truth, you've seen the truth, and yet you have tried to keep a lid on the truth, and you've chosen your own way. When he says... I'll give you over to that. That's what you want. And you see, then created a godless society. When God finally says, I'm through, I give you over, man creates a godless society. Now, I'm not saying that they don't have their own gods or goddesses. They are still guilty of idolatry. You'll see here that they exchange the creator God for created things. 
You might even say that they worship themselves. If you notice, it said, in the likeness of men. In so many ways, what we've done in our, I would even say in our nation, is we have created a culture that now worships ourselves. And he says, that's what's, what happens when you see this progression. Martin Luther explains this, this progression of the culture. He says that basically it begins with ingratitude. It finds itself in vanity. It is expressed then in blindness. And before you know it, it is total depravity. In other words, for a culture to come and not recognize God and give the gratitude to God that he deserves, just that simple step leads to this progression of vanity and blindness and eventually total depravity. A godless society. Read with me again, if you will. Beginning again in verse 24. At a description that is given. He says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men and men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Do you see what a desperate situation Paul describes? Do you see the pain and the anguish that accompanies a godless society? He gives us all these different descriptions. First, I want you to see that he says basically that in a godless society, men are driven by their own passions. They're driven by their own passions. In other words, there's no God restraining, there's no law. So in other words, we do whatever we want, we do whatever it feels good to us. Whatever you want to do, it's fine. Whatever you feel like, go ahead. Sound like a society in which we live? Do you recognize how today we are returning to the world of the scripture. For so long, we have been removed, in a sense, from the New Testament world. But now we're moving right back into the same kind of cultures here in the United States and even in the South itself. He describes this one aspect early on, verse 26 and verse 27. He speaks about this one aspect of the culture of the Gentiles. He speaks about their hypersexuality. 
what you really find there. They're hypersexuality. The sexuality is everywhere in front of you. The passions, you do whatever. Even, even as those who defy the natural law. Notice he mentions the natural law, not just the biblical law, but the natural law. And they begin to have same-sex relationships. They're affirmed. If you go back and study the Romans and the Greeks, you'll see that it had become very normal to have those types of relationships. If you read history, if you read uh, the background of the New Testament, you'll find out that it was just so normal. And again, if you look at our culture today, it has become not only normal, but that which is only accepted. For those of us who might still share of the traditional biblical values, folks, we're in the minority to say the least. As a matter of fact, we're being marginalized and we will. To, in a godless society, those who proclaim God will be marginalized. It's going to continue to happen unless there is revival and renewal in our land. May I say to you that we may have sunk to new lows in the last couple of weeks. Folks, I don't mean this to be political in any way. I don't really care if you're a Democrat, Republican. I'm not sure I really care about either one of those right now, to be honest with you. All I'm concerned about is what the Scripture says. But I will say to you, when we have a leader that directs our public schools to allow transgender individuals to use any bathroom of their choice, we have descended into the abyss of ungodliness and immorality. And not only have we practiced it, but just as it says here, we approve now of those who practice it. But I want to remind you, I want to remind you, no presidential edict will change the truth of God. God says in Genesis that there were male and female. And that's what he wants us to teach. What he wants us, he wants us to know that it is within the marriage context, in the marriage context only, that you find sexual fulfillment between a man and a woman. That's what he wants us to teach. No matter what the culture comes against us and says, we must stand. Why? Why? Because our great king and his decree is so much more important to me than some executive decree or action that is taken. Why do we teach it and believe it? Because I believe the supreme magistrate, his judgments are so much better and they set the precedent for any other court decision that is made. I believe, I believe that the righteous lawgiver above, I believe his commandments are greater than any earthly legislation that is passed. And we must bow to him. Now listen to me. I think we speak with truth and we speak in love. I believe we need to recognize that there are those people that are very confused today about their sexual identity, about who they are. How could they not be almost living in the society in which we live? 
that preaches and teaches to them daily a path that is so foreign to the Scripture. So I recognize that there are those who are truly struggling and confused, and what we need to do is to welcome them in and to say, this is the good news of Christ. If you follow what the world says, even what our leaders say, they will lead you into greater darkness. But if you come and know who Jesus Christ is and they understand the truth that will set you free, you will be liberated and you will know life through him. Paul says that the good news, well, it is set in the context of the bad news. And notice as he describes this, all of us are indicted. It says, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things. In other words, they are so debased in their mind that they even come up with new creative ways to disobey him. Disobedient to parents. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. In such a society, man is driven by his passions and he is justified by his reason. Listen to that one more time. In a godless society, men are driven by their passions and they are justified by their reasons. That's what it says in verse 32. They know it. They practice. But they justify it all day long. You see, according to them, it seems right. It seems noble. But what did the writer of the Proverbs say? There's something that seems right unto man. And in the end, destruction. He says, those Gentile nations, no excuse. No excuse. He's talking to the Romans. He's writing from Corinth. He knows about the Gentile nations. He says there's no excuse. Folks, if those nations today are still under no excuse, what a responsibility we have to take the good news of Christ. If our nation continues, what a responsibility that we have to take the good news of Christ. Because we need to be reminded, chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2 is a great passage, as I said, you ought to read it. But just, just get this verse 1. Paul's written all of this of a bad news kind of culture. And this is what he says then. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judge or condemn, for in whatever you judge or condemn, another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, he's not saying you shouldn't be discerning. Some of you, that's all. You can quote the verse, judge not that you be not judged. You can quote that better than you can John 3.16 today. It's probably the most quoted verse in our culture. He didn't mean that you shouldn't have discernment. Did you hear what Paul just said? Paul just pointed out the culture in which he lived. What he was saying here is, but don't forget, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. The difference in those of us who have recognized that is that we've experienced life now. I, I don't come to you and tell you that, that I have been a sinless individual. If I were, I would be lying to you, falsifying those kinds of things. I have fallen short of the glory of God every day so often. We fall short. But it is the gospel 
The good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose the third day, paid the sacrifice for you and for me. That sacrifice that was validated by his resurrection that has given us life and gives us the forgiveness that we so desperately need. When you leave here today, I do want you to know the bad news. But I want you to be able to understand the good news. And I want you to know that the good news of Christ can overcome any and all unrighteousness that's in your life, that's in my life, that's that's out in our culture today because the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. I think we need to understand where we are, but we need to take the good news and be sensitive to people's needs and hearts and lives. And do them a favor by lovingly showing them the truth of God. And his salvation for their hearts and lives. Today, would you commit with me as we recognize we have no excuses as we stand before him? Would you commit with me to spreading this good news that is so desperately needed? Let's pray. Father, we love you, we praise you. And God, how our heart is broken and burdened. Not just for the culture in which we live, Lord, certainly for that, but also for our brothers and sisters who are in this place. And so many, Lord, so many who are confused, who are desperate. Lord, they have heard the message of the world. They've heard the messaging of society itself and our leaders. But God, I pray that today they would hear your heart and your message. God, I pray that you'd give us wisdom and discernment that we so desperately need to minister to truly hurting people. And Lord, through that good news, would you bring reconciliation and healing and life. Help us to commit this morning to convey that life to others. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Would you stand this morning?